it's good to be with uh, the body of Christ, with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I look forward uh, to be sharing with you out of 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 13 through 17, and even more specifically looking at verse 15. So we're kind of like honing it in there, trying to get a little broader swath so we can get some context uh, to that. And so uh, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter, and our main theme has been holy living in the midst of suffering. Holy living in the midst of suffering. Uh, we are called to be holy. That echoes in 1 Peter 1, says, be holy as I am holy. An echo from the Old Testament where God calls us to be like him. God wants us to be like him. I think it's kind of interesting. You remember in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve sinned and Satan tempted them with the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he said, take and eat of this. This will make you like God. You know, and it's really easy for us to think that that was a sin, that, that they were supposed to, that they, you know, wanted to be like God. It wasn't that they weren't supposed to be like God. It's that they were trying to replace God and they were, they were uh, trying to be like God through disobedience and unrighteousness and, and uh, you know, all sorts of, of bad things. They thought that was the path of being like God. But God is a God of love and of truth and of relationships. And God has called us to be holy like him. That is not a bad thing. There can only be one God. We've got to recognize that. But God wants us as his people to be like him in his holiness. Why? Because God is building himself an eternal dwelling that is not made of gold or silver or wood or stone or metal or anything else. It's made out of living stones. His people, us Christians, who have that relationship with him. We are living stones being shaped for God's house. And God uses the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform us into those living stones but then he uses his word and the Holy Spirit coupled with hardship and suffering in this life to mold us as living stones for his eternal dwelling. He molds us uh, to, uh, to being fit together for that temple. And we will dwell with our God for eternity and God will dwell with his people. That is the great promise and hope that we have. And so through 1 Peter, we, we affirm that the path of holiness is also in this life, in this world, a path of suffering and hardship, just like it was for Jesus. Now, we're going to be reading in chapter 3 today. We're going to talk, be talking about something perhaps a little bit more cheerful. You know, when we've gone through a lot of 1 Peter, it's, you know, suffering and hardship, suffering and hardship. And I hope today that we focus uh, on the reason for our hope in the midst of of suffering, the reason for our hope in the midst of suffering. Uh, I didn't intentionally choose this passage for today uh, because it fits well with both Christmas and also with New Year's. It's kind of like a bridge, uh, bring us in the New Year's here, but I think it does both very well. Uh, hope. What is hope? How would you define hope? I, I put this down. Hope is the pleasurable expectation the anticipation of something good that is yet to come. It is not yet, it is not yet fully realized. It's that anticipation and the expectation of something good in the future. And hope can be so powerful. Hope can be powerful. It motivates us to do hard things that we might not normally want to do. It can help us endure things that might normally overwhelm us. 
And it can cause us to even abstain from certain good things so that we can attain or achieve something even greater and better. Hope can be powerful. If you've ever heard pastors talk about hope, you've probably heard them talk about a uh, scientific study that was conducted back in the 1950s. I think it was John Hopkins University study uh, that had conducted it. And the researchers there had taken some lab rats. And it sounds horrible, but they, they, wanted to, they put the, the rats in water to see how long they would swim before they drowned. It's a horrible study, I know. So they did that, and they figured out how long it took rats uh, to swim before they drowned and, you know, figured out what the averages are and that sort of thing. But then the follow-up study to that is they took so, uh, another set of rats, and they, they had them swimming in the water, but some of the rats they would take out just periodically, not for any long length of time that let them rest or anything else. They would just take them out, and then they would put them back in. And those rats that had been taken out just periodically and put back in the water swam in a, a lot longer than the ones that did not have that hope of being taken out and rescued. Swam a lot longer. And so I look at that study, and, you know, the, the point of it is that we've got to have a reason to keep on swimming. You know, the whole Dory thing, you know, from, from that movie. Keep on swimming, keep on swimming. We're not singing that this morning. But, you know, it's kind of the idea. It's like, I agree. You know, we've got to have a reason to keep on sw swimming. Hope is a good thing. The expectation of something good that helps keep us focused and anchored and motivated when things are hard. But this is my question. Is we all need a, key, a reason to keep on swimming. Right? But does the reason for that hope matter? Does the reason that underlines that hope matter? really matter? Let me give you another illustration to kind of hopefully highlight that question and show you what I mean. Uh, there was a, another story that I was reading about. There was two armies. Um, I don't know the names of them. It might have been a completely made-up story. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but I think it still illustrates a kind of the point because I'm sure this has happened. So there are two armies. One army is a lot larger than the other army. And so the general of the small army was preparing to go into battle with his men. They were as prepared as they could be, but his men were, they were ready to follow their general into this hopeless battle. And, uh, and he, want, he was like, guys, you know, he was trying to encourage them. He was trying to give them hope. And so what he did was he took these, his army to a shrine on their way to the battlefield. And they stopped there and they prayed. And after they got done praying, he pulled out a coin out of his pocket, and he addressed his men, and he said, Guys, we are going to let destiny decide our fate today. I have a coin that I'm going to flip. And on one side of the coin, you know, it's like if, if it if lands on heads, it means we're going to win. If the coin lands on tails, it means we're going to lose. And so all of his men are waiting in anxious anticipation. He flips the coin, goes up in the air, and it lands. And he pulls it out, holds it out in his hand, and he shows everyone, and it landed on heads. And everybody was happy. They were excited. They had hope where they didn't have hope before. They went into that battle, and they caught the larger army off guard. They didn't expect the small army to fight with such, you know, vigor and excitement, you know, and, and confidence. And the larger army was overwhelmed, and they were defeated. And so the, the general of the small army, after, after the battle was over, his lieutenant came up with him and was like, you were right. Destiny had determined for us what, what would happen today. And the general held out the coin to his, his lieutenant and said, here, look at this. And he showed him both sides of the coin. 
and it was heads on one side, and it was heads on the other side. It was heads on both sides of that coin. Does the reason for our hope matter? Because in that illustration, the general offered his men a false reason for their hope. They prayed at a random shrine to a false god, flipped a rigged coin, told them it was their destiny, even though the general clearly had no clue if it was or wasn't. But as long as they won the war, which was the point, did it really matter what the foundation and the reason for their hope really was? Does the reason for our hope matter? I hope you are saying yes. I hope you are screaming yes in your head as loudly as you can. But in the deluded sense of hope that the world pitches to us, I'm not sure that it does matter. All hopes and underlying reason for hope that the world pitches to us, if they are not outright false, they are at best inconsistent, undependable, and temporal. At best. I hate to be a pessimist, but I'm more than happy to play the role. For every inspirational story about the power of hope, there are a million stories of hope that has failed. Millions. You never hear those. Michigan fans, Ohio State fans, can I hear an amen? The reason they fail is because the underlying reason for those hopes are not secure. They are not firm. They are not certain. So the big mistake for us as Christians is assuming that this same type of hope that the world has is the kind that God has given to us and he intends for us to have. But that is not biblical hope. For us as Christians, God only, he wants us to have hope. He wants us to know the foundation and reason that makes our hope secure. We needed to know it so intimately that our lives are transformed by it. We need to know it so well that we can give a firm defense to anyone at any time for the reason that we have that hope. We should be able to tell people with power and conviction that there is a good and solid reason for the hope that is within us. It is real, it is sure, and it is alive. It is a living hope. Hebrews 11.1, one of my favorite passages. I might mention Hebrews 11.1 in every sermon. I love it. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of hope. Hope are, is the things that we don't see yet. They're the pleasurable, good things that we look forward to that are not yet fully realized. We look forward to those. Faith is the substance and the evidence that gives us certainty in what we long for, that it is real. It is that underlying thing. Faith in God. Faith, faith refers to everything that points to God, and that is not just Scripture. That is all of creation. Like Romans teaches us, all of creation points to God. All of scripture points to God. Everything points to God. And so that is, that is the certainty with which we have. When uh, Hebrews 11 says faith is a substance, substance is that underlying reality. It's the, the reality that holds 
all other realities. That is how certain and secure that it is. It is the evidence. It's the evidence, something tangible that we hold on to that helps us know that our hope is real. And we don't have enough time this morning, but we could talk about the fulfillment of prophecies leading up to Christ's birth. We could talk about Jesus' miracles. We could talk about all the more than 500 people who witnessed Jesus' resurrected body. All of his disciples. Paul in 1 Corinthians said that. He's, he's talking about all these people. And he said, these people are still alive. Church of Corinth, you can talk to most of them. Some of them have passed away. You can go talk with them. The hope that we have in Jesus is real. It is certain. It is secure. And I want you all to know that we, the hope we have in Christ is not a worldly, flimsy, unsubstantiated, wishful thinking kind of hope. Our hope is sure and certain. You bow your heads with me and let's, let's pray for a moment. Father God, I pray that this morning, by the power of your Spirit, and with the wisdom that comes from your word, Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand what it is that you would have for each of us to know today. That you will shape us and mold us as your living stones. God, I pray that our lives, as a result of reading your word, will reflect the great hope that you have given to us in Christ that we will be living testimonies to your goodness and your power and might. Amen. All right. I hope I gave you ample opportunity to find 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And uh, once again, I'm kind of dabbling into Pastor Preston's territory. He preached on uh, the, last, or the first two verses, 13 and 14, I think, but I'm kind of selfish this way. Sorry, Preston. All right, here we go. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Starts off with a great question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, holy, holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revel your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Like I said, today I want to hone in really specifically on verse 15 here. In verse 15 it says, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. How do we honor Christ in our hearts as holy? One of the ways is by being ready to give a defense for our hope. Defense. That one word, the Greek word that it's taken from is apologia, which is a word that we use, we kind of, you kind of hear some similarities. We use it for apology or apologetics. It's the same idea. Just for the record, when you go and give somebody an apology, 
when you're asking for forgiveness is a really bad idea. Because to apologize is to give it a defense for something. Got it? So, you know, when you're apologizing, usually when you're asking for forgiveness, you need to go say, please forgive me. I've sinned against you in this way. When you're apologizing, you're just saying, I called you stupid because you were driving down the wrong lane on the road. That's why I yelled and screamed at you. You get the difference? So, so apologizing is giving a defense. It's not asking for forgiveness. It's two very different things. But that's what this term... Uh, Apologia means it's to give a defense. And this is one of the ways we show, our, uh, show how we honor Christ in our hearts is by being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Give a defense. Sometimes I think that we mistake this word and think, what it means is that we are defending God, that it is our job to defend God. I want to affirm this very strongly and tell you that God does not need our defense. God doesn't need us to defend him. Who needs defense? We do. God is our defender. We are not his defender. So do not mistake this verse and what it is saying and what it is meaning. We can give testimony to God and his word, but make no mistake, God's word stands on its own two feet and does not need your or my reasoning or logic added to it to give it credibility or power. I've heard it said that defending the Bible is like defending a lion. All you have to do is let it loose. I like that. Defending God's word, defending God is like defending a lion. All you have to do is let it loose. So when we give a defense of our hope, we don't have to be trained attorneys, trained philosophers, trained scientists, trained debaters, but we do have to be biblically trained and biblically literate And we have to know the word and have it on our hearts and let it loose. Uncage that lion. God's word is living and active. Stronger, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does the work. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did Jesus use to defend himself? Out of all people who could have come up with something new and smart to say, even Jesus himself went back and quoted Scripture. I think that is a great example for us. And our defense of our hope is to use Scripture and what God has said. Because God is our defender. And he's given us the means to which to defend uh, the faith and the hope that is within us. So be ready to give a defense. That means that you know God's word, you understand it, you live it, and you are confident and ready to share it because it is true and powerful and you have experienced that truth in your own life. Verse 15 continues and says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I'm going to ask you a simple question this morning. Answer it in your heads if you want. What is the reason for our hope in the midst of suffering? 
What is that reason that gives us the hope? Peter just spends like the entire book of 1 Peter saying this world is a, is a place of suffering and hardship for you as Christians. Jesus was persecuted. They hated him. They despised him, rejected him. If they did that to him, why do you think they're going to treat you any differently? That's kind of the whole idea in 1 Peter there. Peter's trying to prepare us as Christians for suffering and hardship. And he knows the best way to do that is to give them hope. But something has to separate our hope from all the other hopes that the world is giving to people. Because they're flimsy and unsubstantiated. What is the reason for our hope that makes it different from all the other hopes in the world, whether they're religious or not? What makes your hope different? Can you defend your hope? Whatever it is, if it's not in Christ, can you defend your hope, whatever you have placed it in? What is the reason for our hope in the midst of suffering? We must ask because a lot of hopes, again, don't have much reasoning or truth or substance to them. And we don't want to be confused with that kind of hope. What is the reason for your hope? I hope as you were answering that question in your head, you came to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died. He was buried. And he rose again. It's kind of a package deal. Can't really, it's hard to separate any of those things out from the others. They all go together. But it's interesting, as you start reading through Scripture a whole lot, you see, uh, I see a, a lot of passages that really highlight and connect hope, specifically with one element in the gospel, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ go intimately together. And so when we talk about our hope, the reason for our hope, we can't do that without talking that about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verses 12 through 20. I'm going to read, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and read them all. It says, now if Christ, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, and he's talking about the resurrection from the dead, and there was this debate about if there's, after, after Jesus was, you know, died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again, there was still a debate within the church about the resurrection of the saints, of the people of God. And this is Paul's response to them. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If Christ is raised, how can you think that that resurrection is not being offered to you as God's children? He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, let's just assume there is no resurrection for us as Christians. He says, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead, everything that you believed is in vain. That is pointless, purposeless, meaningless. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true and the dead are not raised. It says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Hopeless. Get that? 
If Christ has not been raised, you will not be raised. And you're living in hopelessness. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I loved how he ended that part. But in fact, with assurance, with certainty, you can know Christ has been raised from the dead. When I was in men's choir back in the day, we were touring around, uh, went on tour over a summer in the coastal provinces of, of Canada. There was a lot of old churches that we went to. And I, at first I thought it was really creepy. I didn't understand. I didn't really grow up in a church like this. But when you'd go to the church, sometimes you'd have to walk through a cemetery to get to the church. And uh, I think that would just totally blow people's mind. It seemed very inappropriate. I think now if we put a cemetery, like you had to walk through that on the way to get in, in here this morning, that would creep a lot of people out, especially new visitors coming in. You know, it's just not the first thing you want to be reminded of. But according to this verse, that is the first thing we need to be reminded of. It is the source and the reason of our hope is the resurrection of the saints from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, we will be raised as well. What better way to remind ourselves, I think it's great, than having the church victorious in a cemetery right out front as you come into the church the building, it's not the church, because you come into this building together with the church to praise God. The resurrection of Christ from the dead gives us hope. Not only gives us hope, it is our hope. That is the reason for our hope. What is forgiveness of sins without the hope of the resurrection? What does it mean? Paul tells us if there's no resurrection from the dead, we are to be pitied above all other people. It's pointless. So we have hope in the midst of suffering because of the resurrection. That is the reason for our hope. That's why in 1 Peter 3.13 it says, Who can harm you? I think it's great when I was reading this the first time. It says, Who can harm you? But even if somebody does harm you, if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So it's kind of like, it's kind of a rhetorical question at first. Who can harm you? But then it's like you are kind of being harmed and you're suffering. But what, what is he saying here? He's saying, he's saying, who can harm you when you're going to be resurrected from the dead? The worst that anyone can do to you is kill you, and kill you is not a bad thing if Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. Who can harm you? You know, my mind immediately goes to, like, Pastor Preston and I, we like to joke around a lot, not in the office. Preston is an optimist. I don't know if you've noticed that about uh, Preston. I always thought my, uh, myself was an, I, I was an optimist until I met Preston. And then I, I find, maybe it's just me getting old, but I feel a lot more pessimistic now. Not because of Preston, but, like, we'll talk about different things. And, and Preston is like, um, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And uh, I love that question. Because I'm more than happy to answer that question. I'll just go down. He's not wanting me to answer that question, but I'm like, I'm all for it. And he's tired of it. I, th I don't know if you're asking it nearly as much as you used to. But I'll just start going down, and ultimately it ends in death. 
You know, what's the worst that happens? Somebody's going to die. We're all going to die. You know, that, that's the worst that can happen. And it really is. For the world, that is the worst that can happen. But Jesus is saying, you know, the world looks at that in a fearful way. What's the worst that can happen? We could die. Our hope is gone. Jesus is saying, what's the worst that can happen? Just going to die. That's the worst that got to happen. And that's no big deal because Jesus resurrected. You get the difference? We have hope because of the resurrection. Death is a hope killer. Death is the end of all hopes except one. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because he defeated death by rising from the grave. That's the kind of hope that we have. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because Jesus rose from the dead and told us we would be raised into a new life, we have a hope that trumps all despair and suffering. Who can harm you? That great question. Who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Jesus says this in Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they've got nothing more they can do. They've lost all power. They can do nothing more. I think it's interesting to look at the difference the resurrection made in the lives of Jesus' disciples. You know, looking back on Peter's life and, you know, the other disciples as well, I, I think they were caught off guard when their path with Jesus took that major turn. You know, they'd endured a lot of different kinds of hardships as they followed Jesus. You know, they're constantly traveling. They were, you know, constantly ministering to, to people. And, you know, if you're not a people person, you kind of understand that it just kind of sucks all the energy out of you. Um, you know, they were tired, I'm sure, hungry a lot of times. They tried, you know, Jesus told them to feed 5,000 uh, people. And they're like, how are we supposed to do that? You know, they were almost killed in a storm. They, they faced demons and responsible for casting them out. Um, you know, they, they also, you know, were, were, Jesus was being persecuted by the religious leaders and they were guilty by association with Jesus. The religious rulers of that day were condemning not just Jesus, but his disciples as well. Life was probably kind of hard for them, but I don't think they ever could imagine that what, how hard it would get, that Jesus would suffer to the degree that he did. And Jesus tried to prepare his disciples. He told them multiple times that he would suffer and die. In Mark 8.31, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus told his disciples, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 9.31, after the transfiguration, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he said, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. 
one more time, at least one more time that is recorded for us, we know that Jesus said the exact same thing. But they didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't understand. In each one of these instances, you know, Jesus kept telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried. After three days, I will rise. But they did not understand. The disciples didn't know what he was talking about. And I think that was reflected in their actions leading up to the crucifixion and immediately following the crucifixion. It's hard to know what all the disciples were feeling or what they thought as Jesus was arrested and as, as he was crucified. But as we, we look at Peter's response alone, a girl, a little servant girl came up to him and was like, hey, weren't you one of the disciples that were following Jesus? Was his response one of hope? No. Oh, it was one of fear. It was fear. He's like, no. Three times total, people asked him, hey, aren't you that guy that was with Jesus? No, no, that's not me. It's some other guy. You got me mistaken. When Jesus finally resurrected from the grave, he rose from the grave. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, some of the other disciples, not to the 11. Or to the 11. He didn't appear to them yet. The women, they went and they told the disciples. He said, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's alive. It says that, uh, I think it was in, in the book of Mark, and uh, it, says, it says they wouldn't believe. They thought it was an idle tell. The disciples, Jesus' own disciples, he told them multiple times exactly what was going to happen but they hadn't wrapped their mind around the resurrection as of yet. Doubting Thomas wasn't the only doubter of the disciples, was he? None of them believed until they saw. Jesus said, blessed is he who believes without seeing. It's interesting, you know, right before the Great Commission, there's the great rebuke. Jesus, he rebuked his disciples for their unbelief, for their hardness of heart, because they did not fully believe in the resurrection. They doubted the resurrection. The great rebuke. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? We talk a lot about believing in Christ and his suffering on the cross, and his death, and penalty for this, our sins. But do you believe and have the hope in the resurrection? Because that's the key to suffering and getting through it. They, the disciples, they lived with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, they walked with him, and yet they despaired, and so understandably, because they didn't fully understand the resurrection of Jesus. They were living in fear and doubt and hardness of heart. And that is the same danger for every one of us if we don't understand the power and implications of the resurrection. But once they understood the resurrection, once they saw Jesus alive, that hope, I don't think, ever went away from them again. I don't think they, they never misunderstood or forgot ever again. Their lives were transformed and changed according to that hope of the resurrection. When Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, now they're like, oh, 
He was serious. I thought it was just like metaphorical, you know, like some kind of stuff. I don't know what he was talking about. Don't fear those who can kill the body is what Jesus said. Once they understood that fully, that changed them, transformed them. Stephen gave his testimony to a hostile crowd that stoned him as a result. Did he fear those who could harm him? No, he didn't. Because he had hope in the midst of suffering that was greater than the suffering. Peter went from denying Christ to three people to witnessing to thousands. I think 3,000 were saved that day. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, the powerful religious leaders of that day, and gave testimony to Jesus Christ. Church history tells us that almost all of the disciples, the apostles there, were, uh, were martyred because of their testimony of faith. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed them, and it should change us as well. The reason for their hope was evident. Jesus had risen from the dead. It reminded me me of uh, some of the words from a psalmist in Psalm 16. It's one of my favorite psalms to read at funerals. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. What can man do to harm you? It's got nothing. The close up, the application I think, I hope is built into this is relatively simple. Honor Christ in your hearts as holy. How do we do that? By being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in the resurrection. Not only of Jesus, but also for us because we identify through the cross that Jesus died for our sins. We identify with Christ Because we die with Christ, we are also resurrected and raised with Christ. Be ready to give that defense. Let God's word out of the cage. And it will not return void. Be ready to give a reason for your hope. Jesus rose from the dead. And he's promised that he will raise us up with him. We have a living hope that cannot die or be put to death. Because of that, it changes our lives. That's why we are zealous for what is good. That's why we do not have to fear or be troubled. That's why we can have the boldness to share the gospel. And when we're not afraid of people and what they can do to us, we can respond in gentleness and respect to to those that might even kill us, that might despise us, might reject us. We can share the gospel with gentleness and respect the same way that Jesus did. How did he come and live the gospel and share it with us? With gentleness and respect. And finally, as we share this great hope with the world, it's important that we do this with a good conscience. There's nothing that will cloud 
our sight, our line of vision to the hope that we have in the resurrection more than sin, unrepentant sin in our life. There's nothing that will keep us from sharing that with others more than unrepentant sin in our lives. So it's important that we honor Christ in our hearts as holy by living as Jesus Christ did, selflessly, for the honor and glory of God the Father. We need to live the same way. So that is the reason for the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. 